Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. I am so thrilled to share this episode with you this week. It is with a, an amazing psychotherapist called Katie McKenna. She's Irish, and we are talking about the fourth response, the fourth trauma response, which is fawn. I've touched on this very, very briefly in previous episodes, but here in this episode, we go into it in, in really specific, great detail, and if anyone has ever struggled with people pleasing or saying yes when you want to say no or struggling to assert yourself or feeling like you can't speak up or you're afraid to appear a certain way this is the episode for you we unpack a lot and I hope you find it as helpful as I did I offer up myself as a guinea pig for Katie to help unpack so thank you so much for tuning in thank you as always for all of the the feedback the reviews the likes the shares really appreciate it and yeah enjoy Katie McKenna, thank you so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. First of all, welcome. And how are you keeping? I'm really well. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I was so happy when I got your email about coming on the podcast because you came to me with a topic. So first of all, you are an accredited psychotherapist. Let's get that part known. (laughs) And you came to me and and suggested we talk about the fawn response, which is something I've very lightly touched upon before. It just came up in conversation in another episode. And I was like, hold on, what? There's a fourth response. I'd never heard of it before. And I made a mental note to try and go back to it at some point. So thank you for coming to me with that. I think it's a really important topic. And I think it's going to be really helpful to my listeners. So you became pretty much a TikTok superstar yourself uh, for talking about this. Give me a little bit of background about how what got you to this point. Okay, so I've been an accredited psychotherapist now over 10 years. I work in a GP practice in County Monaghan and it was the lockdown in January. Um, I just, you know, a lot of people were struggling and I thought, how can I get this information out to the public? Because a lot of my work, what I've seen over the years is 
the same examples coming in. And so although everybody's story is unique, it was the same underlying issues. And the phone response, as you said there, it's the least known trauma response. So when I started talking about the phone response on TikTok, yes, it 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 blew up and um, people can absolutely identify with themselves. And that's one of the amazing things with the phone response in particular, that psychoeducation is actually one of the biggest factors to drive change. There can be such a relief for people to be able to identify where this stemmed from, because what I often hear is what people come into me and say is, well, that's just me. I've always been this way. And the they kind of think then, well, I can't change. This is my personality. This is who I've always been. Whereas when we're able to take them back and show actually, well, here is a set of, you know, responses that you really became stuck in to get your needs met as a child. But when we continue them into adulthood, they're, they can really be detrimental in adulthood. So it's to identify how they worked for us in childhood, but then we become stuck in them and think that that is just who I am. So the phone response is the fourth trauma response. Yes. Um, let's before we go into what the phone response even is or how how it looks or how it takes shape, let's go back to the the first three. So it's fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And they sound very much like something that happens in the moment, whereas the phone response sounds like something a bit more like ingrained. So let's let's talk about the difference between the first three, and then we'll move on to phone. Okay. So at the I suppose then let's talk, maybe if we will, then a little bit to explain more than the difference between a response and then what we would call a trauma response. Okay. So we all have these four different states to respond in, freeze, fight, flight, and fawn. So for example, if somebody was to attack me that was stronger, it might be in my best interest to fawn, to try to appease them to get out of the situation. If I feel that the attack is going to happen anyway, I might go into freeze and disassociate from my body for protection. If I think that it will be helpful, I might fight back if I think that that's going to help or flight, which is to flee the situation. So these are healthy responses that we all have. And are they quite automatic? I mean, in that moment, you wouldn't really be cognitively thinking through what's the best thing. You're absolutely, they're, they're unconscious. It's a part of our brain. It's a sur- the survival part of our brain. It's not rational at all. Rational, it, you can think or learn. It's basically, if you imagine that you were going to fall, that you would put out your arms straight away. If you went across a road and you didn't hear a car, you would jump back off the curb. It's an innate human response um, against danger, against a threat. So people who experience a good enough parenting in childhood, they arrive into adulthood with a healthy, flexible response to danger, you know, with appropriate access to all these four different responses. Untraumatized people have easy access to, in particular to the fight response. And because that ensures good boundaries, healthy assertiveness, you know, an aggressive self that that's protectiveness if necessary. The phone response tends to, their, their, their fight response then is obliterated. So trauma occurs when an attack or an abandonment triggers this fight, flight, freeze phone response so intensely that the person can't turn it off once the threat is over. So you become stuck in this adrenalized state. Your sympathetic nervous system becomes locked on and you can't activate 
what's your relaxed mode, your parasympathetic nervous system. Okay. So we all trigger these responses all the time when we perceive yes. a threat or when there's a genuine threat. And it's yes. like, we have to always stipulate. It's not like an actual someone wielding a bloody ax in your face. It could be a threat to your sense of well-being or security, but what you're saying when it converts into trauma, it's when it gets stuck in that way. Yes. So you become stuck in the state and hence why then people think, well, this is just me. So most people that present to me present with, with anxiety. Um, well, anxiety and depression would be the two main ones I deal with. But anybody that presents with anxiety, they're stuck in this adrenalized state. It's adrenaline infusing into their body and they can't turn it off. They say they're you know, their minds go in a mile a minute. They can't relax. They can't switch off. So they're stuck in one of these responses, in one of these sympathetic nervous system responses. And that is where we would look. And that is the difference between a trauma response, because as you said, this is innate, this is healthy. And yes, a lot of people, when I talk about safety and threats like that, they think that, well, somebody wielding an ax at me. But when I talk about safety and especially in childhood, Safety is not the absence of threat, but the premise of connection. So a child is so dependent on their parent that if the parent pulls away, um, pulls away affection or love, the child feels abandoned. They don't feel safe in that moment because safety is connection. You mentioned there just about the, the flight or fight response. For me, I would have always thought that the reason that we get stuck in this, you say, adrenalized state is because we we're in a situation now where where there's nothing to fight or to flee from the kind of threats we're facing in this day and age. But with the with the fawn response, the fourth response, it seems like that's quite applicable to our life now. So when we talk about fears um, and again, so about connection. So generally, the fears that people have is fear of losing that connection, fear of being disliked, fear of upsetting somebody, fear of somebody pulling away, fear of not being good enough, fear of disappointing somebody else, fear of not living up to the expectation that somebody else has set. So anytime that I mention fear, there's a biological response in our body to fear. Um, again, this adrenaline to help us freeze, fight, flight or fawn. But when, again, this is when we are stuck in our trauma response, this is heightened and we're hypersensitive to these things. So then we will, the fawn response in particular, that is basically where you will merge your wishes and needs to the to the wishes, needs and demands of others. And you will abandon your own wants, preferences, desires, boundaries. Okay. I mean, and it all sounds very extreme and, and dramatic, but it's, I think we all probably are acting out the fawn response just in our day-to-day -day interactions. And we definitely are familiar with the idea of people pleasing now, but let's, let's really try and define the fawn response. How does it look? What shape does it take? And how can we identify within ourselves? That's an excellent question. And you answered part of it there in your question, because when you said that we can all identify with people pleasing, the phone response is essentially people pleasing and codependency. Now, codependency is a word that a lot of people can't relate to. So I, I just have some questions here then to ask yourself and your listeners and to see then if they can okay. identify with them. Yeah. So um, I have eight or 10 written down here. So Go for it. Do you find it very difficult to turn down a request from a friend, family member or coworker? Absolutely. 
do you struggle to relax unless you've finished all the things you have to do? 100%. Is your sense of identity based on what you do for other people? Yeah, I think I think a good chunk is, yeah. Do you almost never ask anybody to do things for you? No, I've gotten pretty good at that, but I think I have the awareness now having made this podcast for long enough to be able to ask for help. Yes. And that's that's brilliant. That's the he, this is the thing with psychoeducation and awareness. Awareness is not passive. It's when, you know, when somebody can identify, oh, I didn't realize that that was leading to this. So there, when I became aware of it, I'm much better at asking for help. Yeah. So on a daily basis, are, are you rarely satisfied with how much you've accomplished? Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you feel guilty if you took time to relax or just do something pleasurable for yourself? Again, I would have before. I can still feel the sense of guilt, but I'm getting better at saying, no, you deserve this. You need this. That, like, again, that psycho education, the awareness that I have has really stood to me. Do you believe that no one would really care about you if you stopped doing all the things you do? No. Good. <laughs> do you always assume someone else knows better? Yes. Are you hyper aware of what people think of you? Extremely. And the last three together, always apologizing, over polite and have a fear of saying no. Yeah. To the point that it's debilitating. That word debilitating. So that is where we become, you know, again, when people come to me for therapy, it's when they become stuck in their lives. And that word really fits there when it's debilitating and people feel stuck and can't move on. Yeah, I mean, I explored it in my in my most recent book, Naked, about people pleasing. And they're definitely I think we we contend towards it because in the short term, there's lots of benefits to it. Like it, we think it makes our life easier in the short term. So why do we jump to it? Why is it easy to do? Why is it a natural reaction? And, and then why is it maladaptive in the long term? So if I go even with Pete Walker's definition of what the phone type is. He says that phone type seeks safety. And again, safety is connection. So think connection with your, you know, husband, mother, friend, partner. So phone type seeks safety by merging with the wishes, needs, and demands of others. They act as if they unconsciously believe that the price of admission to any relationship is to forfeit all their needs, rights, boundaries, and preferences. So the question that we have to ask then is, where, where was that familiar in our lives? Where did we learn that? Where was that familiar that somebody else's needs were more important than my own? And when we go back to childhood, so although there is cultural conditioning and there's a huge cultural conditioning of girls to be nice, um, whereas boys are thought to be strong, loud if they're defiant, you know, that's just boys. With girls, they're being dramatic. <laughs> So there is cultural conditioning, but when we're when we're children, our social bubble is really restricted and reduced to really our caregivers and whoever's in our immediate surrounding. So the first port of call that we look at is on the relationship with the parent. And a lot of times where the phone response um, happens is when the roles are reversed between parent and child, where the child has to take on the emotional responsibilities of the parent. It's a, it's a term called parentification. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with it. No, I've never heard that before. So parentification again is where these roles are reversed between parent and child. So perhaps as a child, you grow up, you know, with a, with your parents confiding secrets to you, or they go to you for emotional support, or the child ends up diffusing marital or household arguments, or they're really given advice on in adult situations. 
And a lot of the times they can be put in charge of practical duties, paying bills, cooking dinner, booking medical appointments. So really above and beyond age appropriate chores. And they often get compliments for being so good or so mature and so responsible. So basically from a young age, they learn to push away their own needs or feelings and focus on others. I think this might also be, I don't know, I might be wrong, but common for maybe my generation, we would have heard the phrase never air your dirty laundry in public. So if they were having a disagreement or any kind of family issue, it was never, it never went outside the family. So in my experience, I hope my parents aren't listening to this episode, but whenever (laughs) there was an issue, it was dealt with very much internally because of the stigma and the shame of there being a problem. There was no willingness to be vulnerable that there would be in this day and age where I would go to my friends now and say I had a massive argument with my husband. I wouldn't feel like judged for that, but maybe my parents' generation would have. And then me as a child in that situation would feel like, well, no one else is going to help and I need to, I need to help. But also my desire to make everything safe and fine and happy again and calm makes me feel secure. So I'm going to assume that role. You just described the phone response, what you're describing there. So again, the the parents, so, and as you said, arguments, conflict is normal. And absolutely in in my generation too, what happens at home stays at home. (laughs) And like you said, then the, because the shame to speak it out. So then the child internalizes that shame. Well, then there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with our family. So if I can't tell the truth, then I have to put on a front. I have to pretend something else and put on a facade. So I will put on the facade, the face that everything is great and everything is wonderful. Um, I might become the perfectionist that then you can't criticize me and I will be the best at everything. And like you said, because it will regulate my own nervous system. If I can then meet the needs of everybody else, that even that these rows don't happen. Imagine if I could do something for my mother or do something for my father or mind the other kids that that my mother isn't stressed out. And then this conflict won't happen because I, as a child, get scared when my parents argue, even though we understand now as adults that that's normal. So it's all of it's a it's a mechanism for us to to activate this parasympathetic nervous system for us to be able to relax, for us to to be able to feel safe. But when we do this continually, when this happens regularly, continually, and especially when parents um, say that to children that, well, this stays in the home, they often do not feel comfortable then going to talk to their friends. Like you just said, that it's normal to go to your friend now. And as I would too say, and I had an argument with my husband, But if the parent was brought up believing that, that we can't share, they often overshare to the children and can burden the child and overshare information about what's happening in the relationship, about an argument that just took place and really put the child in a place where they're not, that's beyond their developmental capabilities. Another way it may have manifested for me, just while while I have a psychotherapist on the other end of (laughs) Zoom, would be, I guess, when you're a child. And I mean, for me, my definition of of happiness would have been my family sitting around the fire and the movie and just that coziness. I mean, that for me, even just that image just conjures up feelings of, of comfort and safety. And I remember... I mean, I would be looking for that all the time. And obviously my parents would be busy and doing things when then, particularly with my dad, when he would have said, you know, oh, you know, do you want to go, especially as I became a teenager, do you want to, will we go 
to Eddie Rockets, for example, and get some food or, and if I had other plans, I was like, oh, I would drop everything. I'm like, I can't say no to my dad because he he's coming to me now wanting to spend nice time with me. I can't say no. I wouldn't want to hurt him, even though like he could just as easily say no to me and wouldn't think twice about it if he was busy. Or if he'd say, do you want to watch a movie? I would say yes, no matter what, even if I had something else I wanted to do. The minute my parents expressed an interest in something like that with me, I, I immediately said yes. And it's because I wanted it all the time, but sometimes it didn't suit me. And then I, I think I probably learned then to say yes then. Okay, so if it's okay with you then, because you're, you're telling me this then to yeah. delve into that a little bit deeper. Yeah. So oftentimes, and as a, I'm a parent with four kids, so I can understand that, that we as parents can be, we can be busy and we can't, and it's, we can't attune to the needs of our kids 100% of the time. But what happens when a child is continually reaching out and doesn't get that? So they feel um, imagine if you're hungry for it or starved for it. So then when it does come around, well, I better not say no because I'm scared. I don't know when it'll come around again. Mm-hmm. So and a, a lot of the times in our generation, any sort of if a child, well, answered back, if a child offered an opinion, it was it could be considered as rude and as them being cheeky so you don't answer answer back you just do as I say why can't you just do as I say whereas now for in our children's generation there's a lot of talk about conscious parenting or respectful parenting or gentle parenting it can be called and it's really about a lie allowing our child to vent to be angry so an example of healthy anger with a child when my kids are going to bed, definitely one, if not more, will be angry about the thoughts of going to bed. They will say, this isn't fair. I don't want to go to bed. They may stomp up the stairs. That is healthy anger. Now, as the parent, it's up to me to still hold the boundaries. So to be able to understand and go, yeah, so basically I can see it from your side. I understand that, yeah, this is hard. You know, in the summertime when it's bright outside, it's it's hard to go to bed when it's when it's bright outside and there is the validation of their internal world. There is the empathy and the understanding. What happens when a parent is unable to tune into their own emotions, they can dismiss it then in the child. So if a child comes home upset that somebody won't play with them or something happened at school, that's not that big a deal. Get over it. You know, uh, quit your whinging. Stop moaning. Just be grateful. Oh my, well, look at all the other friends you have. Be grateful. And what happens is, is that that disconnects the child from their own sense of self. So now, oh, there's something wrong with me. I can't trust my feelings. I'll have to look to you then to verify what it is I'm feeling. Because as the child, the parent is the know-all. So we look to them we're actually looking for them to mirror our own feelings back to us. But when they're cut off from their own, they can, they won't validate us. And so that's where the disconnect happens. Gabor Mate states that trauma is actually fundamentally this disconnect from self. When I don't believe that I can trust myself or trust my own feelings, because perhaps I'm being too dramatic, perhaps I'm overreacting, perhaps it's not that big a deal. So even just the word trauma there, it doesn't have to be some textbook brutal trauma it's no like it's just like you said that loss that disconnect that disconnect and a lot of people think that trauma is either physical or sexual abuse but most of the times the trauma that I see that comes into my practice is emotional neglect and because it's unseen it's harder for people to name so again it's where 
our experience wasn't connected with the parent. Pete Walker actually says that uh, usually in this parent type, this parentification relationship, that there's one, and this word can seem very strong, there's at least one narcissistic parent. So what I would hear in my practice is, well, no, it was always all about let's say ma'am, or it was always all about dad, like their needs come first. And even now, you know, I can't say no to them. I, I do what's expected of me. And if I say no, they can push against my boundaries. Um, there can be little empathy still. And in, in a boomer generation, they were, they were brought up in an experience where children are seen and not heard. So they were cut off from their emotions. So often, um, they can't get in touch with the empathy because they're saying, well, you have it so good. You know, I, I did a good job. I don't know what you're talking about. So they can really gaslight the adult child now and say, hey, you know, that, that didn't happen at all. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Is there a scenario where somebody would actively engage in the fawn response as an adult and not have had something go on as a child? Because to me, it just seems if you if you take away looking back into the past history, it's just easier to be agreeable from a survival mechanism to just not make things difficult so that you stay in your tribe, in your group. Is, is, is it always related back to some kind of childhood experience? Well, where in your childhood did you learn that it was unsafe to say no? Where did you learn that somebody would disconnect and that you weren't safe in your child, that when you weren't agreeable? Could it be also just like an evolutionary thing? So these survival responses are evolutionary. We absolutely act this way to stay in our tribe. But in our childhood, we have to look and say, where did we learn that it's not OK for us to use our voice? Where were we shamed or guilt tripped? for not doing the thing that our parents wanted us to do, for, for our, to not conform and fall into line. So then how does this carry on into, into adulthood? When we, so 
these responses where you're absolutely right. These are 100% for our survival in childhood and they worked in our childhood. We got our needs met. It's safety first, it's survival first. We got those connections. And in society for the phone response, we were generally praised for them. Oh, you're, you're wonderful, you're so kind. And there's so many um, positive attributes in the phone response. They are kind, they are helpful, they are loving, but it's when it crosses over to the extreme where they, again, lose themselves in the other person and mirror what is expected of them. So whatever you want from me, I will become, I will shapeshift, I will over-listen, um, I will attune to your needs over mine. So again, in childhood, this was appropriate. This got our needs met. But in adulthood, then we are not showing our true selves. We're putting on this facade. Phone types tend to avoid emotional investment and I suppose potential disappointment by barely showing up. I, in, in my client's work, I, so we're sitting obviously across from each other and I put my hand up in front of in front of them. Now I'm still sitting in my chair. It's not in their face, but I'm practically blocking the view so that they can't see me. They can partially see me. And I show them my hand. And I'm saying that when I use the phone response continually, that I will do everything to please you. I'm showing you a version of myself because I'm scared to show the real me. I'm scared to say no in case you think I'm disagreeable or rude or demanding. So I will show you a version of myself and I'm barely showing myself and I become agreeable and I'll avoid conflict and I'll become a perf, you know, a perfectionist to avoid criticism and rejection. But so I hide behind my, my helpful persona. So I'll over listen, I'll over elicit and go above and beyond for the other person and over focus on, on them, on their partners so I don't have to risk that real self-exposure and allow them to see me because if they see me, then the fear is that the possibility of a deeper level of rejection. So in that sense, it would sound like, I mean, something I've experienced is when you try and challenge the phone response. When you say that, what do you mean by that? When I try to challenge it? When I try to challenge my people-pleasing tendencies. So for example, do you mean saying no to somebody? Yeah, like just, I mean, definitely... There's part of it where I just, it's not even wanting to be nice, but it's wanting to always appear like you're so laid back and so easygoing because I think I definitely grew up with this message being told me that I was fussy or that I liked things a certain way. So like, I'm always wanting to appear super laid back. So that's one thing. But then another thing is, say someone sends a message in a WhatsApp group and I think it's mean or rude or something and I react and I'm like, I react how I actually feel inside. I'm like, oh, that wasn't cool. I feel such an anxious response there in that moment for having not been agreeable and a people pleaser and for, for not having let something go because I guess it's another way of saying no, no, I don't accept this. So that's the thing we're supposed to be doing is to try, it's to try and not be such a people pleaser, but then actually you feel more anxious when you don't. Yes. So CBT, for example, would solely focus on the cognitive element of that and let's change your thinking and let's change your beliefs. Whereas um, trauma work or psychotherapy would delve back into the past to see where they stem from and not to lay blame on people or lay blame on parents. But when we understand how, why we develop these in the first place, it can actually give us compassion 
to then give ourselves in the moment what we need. So, for example, you said there that as a child, you were told that you were fussy, that you liked things a certain way. I know there's some experiences along the way that made me feel like you need to be more laid back. Okay. <laughs> you need to appear to be more laid back because I had different food intolerances. I liked, I had I liked certain things, my comfort zone. And that was all to suit my anxiety growing up, I suppose. And now I'm trying to appear like, even like as a parent, not to be super stuck in your routine and super fussy about how we like things in a certain way, or I want to be home for a certain nap time with my baby. And, you know, in the beginning, I put myself under so much pressure to be like, oh, we're just yeah. going to go with the flow. Or if someone, if a group of friends are trying to pick somewhere to go to eat, like everyone's afraid <laughs> to say, well, actually, I think we should go here and not there. Everyone, like, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, I'm easy. Like, I'm so laid back. And it's like, why don't you just bloody say this place is shit. Yeah. Let's go here. So again, I'd look into the fear there. And again, it's the fear of being, I don't want to be seen as demanding. Like you said, I want to appear passive. Yeah. I want, or appear easygoing. Because that's more acceptable in society. I think that's more favored. It is. So let's even go back. Your, your son now, what age is he? He is almost 16 months. Okay. So almost 16 months. So trying new foods, throwing foods away. Um, so let's even imagine that what, when we're calling a child fussy, and let's look at your reaction, let's say, to your child. So, for example, let's say you've just given him, I don't know, pineapple, mango. Broccoli. That usually gets a good reaction. <laughs> okay, broccoli. So what does he do with the broccoli? Throws it on the floor. Okay. Now, how do you respond to him? I feel very impatient. I feel frustrated. And but I try I'm with the awareness that I have now, I'm trying to be like, that's okay. We're just exploring. But inside I'm like, for fuck's sake. Okay. And that's, that is so honest and so normal. So there you were able with your awareness to identify your own emotions to then, instead of reacting to them, because reacting to them looks like then saying to the child, oh, for God's sake. And I do that sometimes. I mean, I do. Yeah. And so this, this, this is the, the, the whole point of this is that there's good enough parenting. We can't, there is no such thing as perfect. There is no such thing as perfect person or perfect parent. So it's when, when we make mistakes that we can acknowledge them, either if we go overboard that we can apologize to the child or that we make a mental note to try a different approach the next time. But we can see that it's all coming from us, that it's actually not the child's fault. But when a parent believes, and as a child gets older, a child automatically picks up whether the look a parent is giving them is one of pride or one of disgust. And again, if that is done continuously over a behavior where they get a look of disgust, the child feels shame and thinks there's something wrong with me. So I have to behave different in order to get the connection from my parent. So let's look at that with the broccoli, right? On a very simple thing. But let's say if you were to shame your child every time that he won't eat broccoli or he pushes it across his plate and you and a group of people are saying, look at him, he's so fussy. Oh, but look at, and imagine there's a cousin or somebody, look at her, she's so wonderful, she does it. And, or we're, we're gonna be internally annoyed at them and then we're gonna withdraw our love and affection from them because really deeply we're, we're just pissed at them for not doing it. They can feel that. So they internalize that, that there's something wrong with me. Like you just, like what you were talking about, I thought that there was something wrong with me for being fussy, for liking things the way I liked them. So there is the innateness that you actually knew what you wanted. Yeah, the same way the child 
when they're hungry, they cry out. When they're dirty, they want their nappy changed, they, they cry out. When they want comfort, touch, acknowledgement, they innately cry out. What you express there in your young years is that you knew what you wanted, but you were met from, from in your, yeah, you're saying not directly from your parents, but from your surrounding experience that people, mm, they weren't pleased by that. You're, they were, again, this look of kind of disgust, like what's wrong with you? Like, why can't you just get on with things with everyone else? Why are you so high maintenance? Why are you so fussy? So there, the child internalizes that and says, well, there's something wrong with me. So I better change. So now when we look at that and then we look at now at that amount with my friends and I want might, might want to go to an Indian, oh, well, Jesus, no, I don't want to be demanding or high maintenance and have that look of disgust put on me again and that shaming experience because my brain, my survival brain remembers that. So no, 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 I will please and I will appease to not be shunned, to not be shamed for the connection. Whereas the healing is actually going back to that childhood experience. Let's use the broccoli with your son. Is there any, so although it's, I understand the frustration with the parent, is there anything wrong? When a child is 16 months, their, you know, their language, they, they can't use that language. So they, they use whatever skills they have. They either keep their mouth shut that you can't get it in, or they will throw it on the floor. They are, if they had words, they'd be saying, mom, I really don't like the taste of this in my mouth. It doesn't feel nice or it doesn't taste good. Yeah. And they're entirely right to say that. They are. And there's the empathy. So there's the understanding and compassion. And there is actually the reparenting we have to do with our own self. So for example, now when we're an adult and somebody's asking us to go to, you know, where do you want to go? We have to check back in with ourselves then and say, well, if this was my, if, if this was, if the way I do it for myself is I imagine me actually as the child or I, I have a daughter and I imagine her and I imagine her if her friends are asking her to go somewhere and would I want her to say, well, I'd like to go X. Now, it doesn't mean that you throw a strop if you don't get there, but actually, should she be shunned for that? And if she shouldn't be and I would love her to have her voice, well, I check in with me and I say, well, somewhere I've lost mine, but do I want that to continue? Or do I actually want real connections here? Because you will learn something from me if you ask me, where do I want to eat? Even if it's just me saying, I'd like to go to an Indian or a Chinese or, you know what, tonight I'd love a big burger and chips. <laughs> I'm expressing a part of myself to you that there you will actually get more of a connection to me. So it's asking myself in those moments as an adult. So again, survival first. Is it safe with these people for me to express my opinion. And let's challenge that survival brain. Let's challenge that shame and say, will they shun me for it? Will I actually be rejected for expressing an opinion if it's not agreed with? And here is where it's actually, so here is where we get the autonomy and authenticity, which in your book, in where vulnerability, that's exactly what it is, what I'm expressing in the moment. I have fear Vulnerability is ultimately acknowledging the emotion that we have fear. So in that moment, I'll be too scared to say where I want to go. But actually, if I can acknowledge that fear, so not let it drive my behavior, acknowledge it, and then make changes in our present relationships. And that's how we break the cycle. 
Okay. But we have to acknowledge then that it's okay in that moment to feel a bit anxious because you are acknowledging that there is a fear there. Yeah. And not only acknowledge that it's okay for us to have fear, that it's absolutely normal, (laughs) that it's absolutely normal. And especially And women in particular are more conditioned into this response to be compliant, to be um, servitude. They actually believe that in order for me to show you love, I have to sacrifice myself. No, what do you want? What do you want? Because that's how I believe that that's showing my love. And again, I would go back to childhood and see where where did we get that message that that's what love is? And do you think is that more of a nature or nurture or both thing for for being a particularly female dominant issue so our survival brain is nature our survival brain absolutely is nature but our rational brain is nurture (laughs) so one way i describe this um so if you put your your five fingers up let's say on your right hand and if you put your thumb into your into your fist and see the way you can close your four fingers over your thumb now yeah lift your four fingers back up and your thumb is the amygdala This is our survival brain, the part of our brain that activates this fight or I say fight or flight for short, but it's the four freeze, fight, flight, phone. So our amygdala activates the fight or flight. So close your thumb in and now your four fingers that are up. This is our rational brain. So close your four fingers over your thumb. Yeah. And so the four fingers are this. I, I have my hand just above my forehead now. That's our prefrontal cortex. That is the rational part of our brain. Firstly, it's not that's not fully developed until we're 25. So this is why young kids and teenagers can't regulate their emotions, why they're impulsive, why they'll act at the minute and, and think they're invincible and they won't think out the consequences. So firstly, that's why children aren't able to rationalize and think, oh, there's something like, ma'am, there's something wrong with you. It's only broccoli. Or there's something wrong with you, mom and dad, that you can't have the patience to see that maybe I have more needs here that I, that we are all, we all have different needs as children to be met. But when you're telling me that I'm being high maintenance, demanding fussy, my rational brain cannot think and think actually, well, no, maybe, maybe it's actually you we, the rational brain isn't developed. We will internalize that and think there's something wrong with me. In adulthood and childhood, when we feel fear, so that fear of rejection. So in that moment, even when somebody's asking us for where do we want to go for something to eat, our amygdala activates our fight or flight. And that rational part of our brain that now is covering our amygdala, it shoots up. So put your four fingers up. So the amygdala is now in charge. Our survival brain is in charge. It's actually hijacked our rational brain. So that's why in the moment when we're fearful, when people say, oh, I I couldn't think straight, I was all over the place. And it's true, we can't think straight because the amygdala has hijacked our rational brain. So the four fingers are up, the amygdala is in charge. And then if you look where your hand is attached to your arm, just imagine that that's your body. So the moment that the amygdala is triggered, it hijacks your rational brain, the four fingers are up, and it sends adrenaline, well, adrenaline, cortisol, and noradrenaline into the body. So our body is now activated. So my heart will be beating faster. My muscles will be a bit tense. My stomach will be a bit sick at the thoughts of speaking up or saying something. And it's to be aware of that physiological effect. So that is absolutely normal. That is healthy that anytime we feel fear, that 
our body will be activated. And I completely agree. Right. But that's not a nice feeling. So for me, in my wanting just to have a peaceful life, I'm like, if me asserting myself and saying what I want has that reaction and I'm trying to I just don't want to feel that way, then it seems like a more better option to be a people pleaser, which isn't the case long term. Yes. So and that's what happens. We will immediately give in to alleviate that anxiety, to alleviate that fear. Whereas again, we have to check into that emotion and say, well, what am I scared about? I'm scared about rejection. So fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of being criticized. And that's where that links directly to childhood. Where did I learn that it was not okay for me to express myself fully? Where did I learn that I would be shamed for having an opinion or being told that you're being cheeky and don't answer back? And God, why can't you just go along with everybody else? Why are you causing so much hassle here? So we have learned to give in in order to meet that to meet that connection, because ultimately, when we when we keep up this facade and um, when we keep up this people pleasing again, it's like I'm blocking a part of myself. I won't show you my true me for fear of rejection, but actually it's there's a connection that's not happening in the moment because I don't feel safe enough to share my true self. And can that then lead to anxiety the anxiety then can be a a feeling of not being seen a feeling of then not knowing who I really am the feeling of not really fitting in and not feeling heard or or understood I get annoyed at myself as well like after the fact I'm like you just basically were like a doormat there you just lay down and said yeah whatever and when you actually really did have a strong opinion about something and now you have to go along with this, even though you're not happy about it and you're kicking yourself. And then you kind of launch an attack on yourself, which produces more adrenaline and cortisol and contributes more to anxiety. So sometimes the anxiety can feel quite intense in the moment that you do assert yourself. But then when you can try and unpack it and let it calm down, the, the benefits are longer term. And I guess the anxiety that you feel, the feeling of appeasement and having things be easygoing when you say yes all the time is in the short term seems better. But in the long term, if you're going to have that, dialogue with yourself and be annoyed at yourself and be kicking yourself and feel like your needs aren't being met that's longer term damage that's not serving you well as an adult am I right you are so what what you're talking about there is then let's say our internal critic kicks in so but again let's follow that emotion so afterwards if if I had like you said had a really strong opinion on something and I didn't share it and then afterwards I go home when I'm feeling safer, so I'm back, the four fingers are back over the amygdala, I'm back in my rational brain, there's no adrenaline in my body. And now my emotion is anger. So anger, that's our fight response. So you're right, again, there's going to be, that's not adrenaline. So again, it's one of our, our four responses. And I'm angry now at myself. But again, if we learn through emotional awareness, through emotional intelligence, what what is the purpose of anger? So instead of blindly reacting to it and and criticizing myself and nearly, you know, emotionally abusing myself, being a bully to myself, saying that was ridiculous. What did you do? What is the purpose of my anger? And anger is there to show us or direct us when we perceive something that happened was wrong or unjustified or unfair. So if I look into that, if I didn't share my opinion, you know, I might feel that that was wrong for me. That went against my values. And I might feel that it was unjustified in that moment because actually I was safe. So my emotion is actually 
spot on. Um, if I can recognize that and react to that, respond to it as opposed to reacting to it. And again, the compassion comes in here, the compassion that we would have for a friend. So for example, if a friend came to you and said, oh my God, Caroline, and I was with somebody last night and they said this, and I really disagreed, but I just went along with it. And I'm so mad at myself. How would you respond to them? I would say, yeah, we've all been there. I mean, it's very hard to assert yourself in the moment when I guess in that moment you feel if the amygdala is in control, your head's not straight. You don't have the words. And because we, we always say, we always come away from a situation saying, why didn't I say that? Now I know what to say. So you would react to your friend with compassion, yeah. validation and empathy. Yeah. But yet here you react to yourself with criticism and um, meanness, essentially. I know. And if we get caught up in that, so here again is where the compassion comes in and here the compassion comes in again and we can see it, especially a lot of people with, with, where, with this type of response where they come fixated, when they actually see their own children around the time where they experience this, um, I suppose, shaming behavior from parents or caregivers around them. And when we actually see that the child is just expressing themselves, but the parents fear means that then they could try to control the child. Whereas a parent's goal should never be to change a child's nature. It should be to allow the child to become more themselves. Before we, we wrap up, I want to try and give people some solutions or things they can take away to maybe try and apply so let's say for example you are dealing with a very very strong personality at work someone who's very good at asserting themselves says no I don't think this is a good idea this is what I think is a good idea but you maybe disagree how can we start to assert ourselves in a way that is going to I guess move us out of the space of just being a permanent fawn in the woods okay so let's try to identify our own emotions so you're actually saying that in that moment that you identified your own fear and actually, but overcame that and actually said, well, I think this, I think we should do A. And then it was overruled. Well, no, actually we should do B. And then what you're left with. So let's identify those emotions. Let's try to imagine what that must be like. Well, firstly, straight away for me, the disappointment that I might feel and then the shame and the shame is God. Who, who did I think I was maybe saying that? Um, how did I think that anyone would change? And I question myself as well. I'd be, I, I'd be like, oh, maybe that, that was a terrible idea. Maybe you're actually not cut out for this. Maybe you're not, you know, as smart as you thought. Maybe you should just keep quiet. Okay. And so here again, it's where we were rejected from our own emotional expressions, where we didn't get that validation that actually, yeah. Im imagine when a child comes running to you, even your wee fella now, if he fall and, and hurts himself and he cuts his knee. And often, so they come running and they, they could be on your knee for, you know, less than 10 seconds and they jump yeah. back off and they're away. And we go, oh, <laughs> they're fine. And what sounded like this meltdown coming. But what happened is, is that they were experiencing heart embarrassment um, pain and they come in to their mother and she comforted them. So what happened in that moment is he was validated understood and had empathy. Now this is all nonverbal. Mm. And so he learns, oh, I'm right to feel this way. And he's like, I'm good. And he jumps off and goes away. Now imagine when he comes in and his knee is cut and we look at him and say, what are you whinging about now? It's not even that bad. It's only a little scrape. Go away about you. 
when that is done continually, the child will learn that, God, I'm, I'm being dramatic. I can't trust my own inner experience. I will be called um, fussy. I will be I will be called demanding. A I will mo- be a moan bag or a whinge or a moan bag or a whinge. So I will learn not only to silence that, I will silence that that much that I will become disconnected from it because I learned that when I expressed it, that my emotional expression will be rejected. So there's the alienation from my own feelings. Okay. So again, in that moment, it's actually to get in touch then with the compassion because we are not unlike children. We could imagine you know, in that incident, a child in class that they're asked to do something, a project and, you know, air child says, well, I would like this. And another child says what well, I would like this. And then everybody went towards that. Oh my God, that would be gutting for the child. They could feel left out. They could feel rejected. They could feel abandoned. So we have to validate that experience that of course you're feeling that in the moment that's understandable. And it's only through that validation and awareness and compassion that we can even begin to move forward unless we're able to identify those emotions and be able to respond with them compassionately instead of judging them the way we were judged. In the scenarios where we do sort of back down or we we people please or whatever, we say yes to things we don't want to say yes to, how can we say, I'm going to, I'm going to try and serve myself better here in this moment when our amygdala is probably firing off, telling us to be, be safe? Well, in, in that moment, in that moment when the adrenaline response is there, it's one having the awareness of what has happened. And that is why I love that image with the, the thumb you yeah. know, in, our, in our hand. So we have that image that we're out of our rational brain and the adrenaline is in. So we are acting purely on survival. So we will go into one of our four responses. So even being aware of that, and awareness is not passive because it's it's asking us to deconstruct these our behaviors and our patterns. So even becoming aware of that is huge. And our breath is huge in that moment because when we are triggered, we generally hold our breath. You know, when we're really mad or really tense, we're holding our breath and we're taking short, shallow breathing. And panic attacks happen because so when I'm breathing in like that, I feel like I can't get a breath. And actually, the truth is, is that I can't because I'm so full of, well, CO2, the oxygen I've breathed in. So it actually means that I have to release that. So to fully release that, that then I'm actually able to take a breath. And the slow breathing slows down our adrenaline response. It allows us to get back into our rational brain and to stop the adrenaline going into our body. A lot of times we can still feel it in our body. It's it's actually trapped there. So imagine, imagine you went across the road and a car was coming that you didn't see and you jump back on the footpath. Mm-hmm. And then you, you say to your friend, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. And you're out of breath, but you actually haven't ran anywhere. But yeah. you're out of breath because the adrenaline has already been pumped into your body. Your heart is beating faster. The blood is pumped into your uh, major muscle groups, which is your legs and your arms to prepare you to either fight or run. And so you might be walking down the street and then say, God, I'm not the better of that. You know, we can still feel, you know, that adrenaline in our system. So when, when when we're aware of that, when we're aware of what's happened, we can actually shake our limbs, shake our arms and legs and shake off that adrenaline. 
but only when we actually feel safe enough in our conscious mind to do so. When we actually realize what has happened, that it's our survival brain that has been triggered. And you're right. Shame is there to guide us to not do anything to upset our tribe and that we could be shunned. Think of, you know, in in Ireland, and it's not going back too far, when women got pregnant out of wedlock, the shame that they would have felt meant that they were rejected from society. So the shame then controls the behavior, the fear of being rejected allows society then to control women, you know, for the church and for people to control women until we become aware of what's actually happening, that we actually have choice over our own bodies and freedom. And there was a revolution that allowed us to be brought up in a generation where we have choices over our own body. So in that moment, that survival response, we have to check our shame. So even though my, my, my idea wasn't picked, is the whole team going to shun and reject me? And am I going to be ostracized now from the community? So we have to, we have to challenge then the reality and say, well, what is likely to happen? Because in our childhood, it, it actually did happen. We were ridiculed and responded to differently. Our emotional experience was rejected and we learned that it was unsafe. Again, not safety meaning abuse, but safety meaning the premise of connection. So I'm scared that these people will reject me. So I have to challenge that then. That's where CBT is very good. So I have to challenge that thought and say, well, is that, is that likely to happen? Will my whole team now reject me and shun me? And will I feel abandoned? And they're like, you said, well, no, probably not. And that then shifts that shifts it internally. And that's when we see that we actually have a choice. Okay. Yeah. I love what you said to me in your email is that your goal is to teach people that our anxiety is not there because we are broken. It is there to shake us, to wake up. And the question is, are we willing to listen? I think so many people are listening to this because they believe their anxiety has rendered them broken in some way. And I am always trying to get across that your anxiety is like signals to pay attention to things that are important that maybe you've been ignoring. So yeah, I would love just to wrap up with your thoughts on that and some parting advice for the listener who hopefully will become more aware of the fawn response going forward. Yeah. Anybody that comes into me, they feel stuck. And like you said, it's debilitating and it is paralyzing in somebody's life. And they think that fundamentally that they need to change. Mm-hmm. Whereas my work is actually, and not going back to stay stuck in childhood, that is never the point of this. And actually, whenever I talk about childhood, it's generally when somebody gives me an example like you did um, in the moment, in our current present relationships, where, so there, for example, with friends, and I didn't want to, you know, express where I was going. And then I say, well, where did you learn that that was not okay to express yourself? And that's where we're brought back to childhood because then going, oh, actually, I was told that I was being fussy or or demanding or being, um, it was another word we used. I can't remember it. It was high maintenance, high maintenance. God, like what, what a word to use. And especially that is used towards women directly to keep them in their place, to keep them subservient, to keep them quiet, to keep them submissive, because that word has such connotations attached to it. 
Um, it's the same when a woman expresses herself and then she's told that she's a bitch. Yeah. And that word again is the same and it's generally only used towards women. And again, it's to keep them subservient. And I'm not asking that we use that word, <laughs> but I absolutely think that we should change our view on what it actually means. Because generally when somebody's calling somebody a bitch, what they're actually saying is, is that you're expressing yourself. You're standing up for your own values, for your wants. Yeah. So it's to kind of reclaim that in our own narrative, whereas the shame will tell us there's something wrong with me. I, I need to be different. So it's really to go back to see that, no, you are never broken, that the goal of a parent is to actually encourage autonomy and independence in a child and to allow the child to become more of who they are and not less of it and not to shame them. But absolutely, my work is done in the present because we heal in the present relationships, in our safe relationships. So, for example, that could look like with friends, if we're open and we're all turning around. So there's four of us and we're all saying, well, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe when we eventually decide that then when we're eating, you know, we can turn around and go, come here. Can we make a, a pact or definitely I am that the next time we ask that I'm going to volunteer an opinion, we don't have to go with it. And this is really hard for me, but I'm going to volunteer an opinion and maybe use well then. Um, because it's only when we actually give ourselves the courage to be ourselves that we unconsciously give other women permission to do the same. Mm -hmm. It's the same with saying no. We can say to a friend, look, I'm really practicing my boundaries and it's really tough for me to say no, but I'm going to start practicing it. So when we get practice in these safe relationships and we can see, well, wait a minute, I told four of my friends that I didn't want to do that, but only one of them is reacting this way. Well, then we actually have a healthier view and going, God, well, maybe it is only this person. Yeah. But the one thing that coronavirus has, I think, given us more permission to do is actually say no to the things that we are uncomfortable with. It has gotten gotten us more used to um, people saying, well, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, at any stages when things lock down or reopen, generally we are all in different stages of what we are comfortable with. Whereas now we have actually had practice to go, well, I'm not comfortable with that. And that is setting a boundary. I'm not comfortable with that. And I don't need to over explain that to you. I'm not comfortable. No, thanks. I'd rather not. But the, the phone needs to know that they have a right for their own needs, that they have a right for their own preferences and that they have a right to boundaries. Excellent advice. Katie McKenna, psychotherapist. Thank you so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety podcast and for really breaking down the fawn response in such a beautifully articulate way it makes a lot of sense i think a lot of people will identify and hopefully as we have said throughout this not beat themselves up for it but practice a little bit of compassion and be like okay this makes sense actually it's really important to understand i think we've really done that part here so thank you so much for everything and i look forward to going over and following you on tiktok and getting more information all the time Thank you. Yes, I'm Katie McKenna, therapist on TikTok and it's Katie McKenna, psychotherapist on Instagram. And also my website, if anybody wants to contact me directly, it's katiemckenna.ie. I actually have a blog on trauma and the phone response and another one on the lie we all fed. And I have a couple more events that I'll be putting up my media. So if anybody wants to contact me, they can contact me through my website also. Amazing. Katie, thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Caroline. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The easiest way to access owning it real time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for owning it real time and access the full library of 10 situation specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.